0: If you're already paid less in your role, and then you don't have access to alternative investments, which are the higher risk, higher reward asset classes, over time, the wealth gap between women and men only
1: exponentially increases. Welcome to the Women on the Move podcast. I'm your host, Sam Saperstein. In this episode, I'm speaking with Elizabeth Galbutt, co-founder and managing partner at Sogal Ventures, the first female-led millennial venture capital firm which invests in diverse female founders in the US and Asia. Her portfolio of health and wellness startups includes two unicorns personal care brand Function of Beauty and lab platform Everlywell. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Elizabeth, welcome to our Women on the Move podcast. It's so great to have you here today. Thanks so much for having me, Sam. So I'm really excited to talk about your career and what you've done with SoGal Ventures, but I'd love to start off almost from the beginning, really take us through what led you to this career. And from what I understand, you got your start in healthcare consulting, so a bit of a different industry. So I'd love to know what made you change careers? How did you go from that into venture capital? What was the reasoning and the motivation behind it?
0: So I always grew up in the healthcare system. Both of my parents are doctors. I'd work at their offices. I'd go on rounds with them around the hospital. I'd go to pharma dinners (laughs) as a kid. Um, And I'm an only child, so I'd always be around a table of doctors. And very early on, I was seeing that there's a lot of problems in healthcare from a business perspective, as well as, of course, how do you improve patient care for all of us in the U.S. And just, I think, over decades, seeing how you know the whole landscape was changing and how much healthcare costs us in the U.S., it's almost about a quarter of our GDP. So after college, I went to Deloitte, which is one of the top healthcare consulting firms. And I was working with a variety of clients on digitizing healthcare. It was really the digital IT movement of healthcare. And it was happening really rapidly because the government was mandating that all these different hospital systems and different companies were taking on new technology. But the issue was the technology wasn't really ready yet, in my view. And it hadn't necessarily been fully designed with a clinician or patient in mind. So I really got a little bit jaded by going through all of this and seeing the billions of dollars that were being invested to implement these technologies that in my mind weren't optimal for clinician care and patient care. And so I ended up doing an MBA, MA in design program between Johns Hopkins and Maryland Institute College of Art. And I remember back to my MBA essay, I was really saying, I want to go back to Deloitte after this experience and run the healthcare practice. And this is going to be my way of kind of being able to touch all these different aspects and problems in healthcare and really innovate. And I think as I look now backwards in venture capital, I'm doing a very similar thing as a venture capitalist, but it's through investment, right, into innovative companies that are really changing the landscape of healthcare. So I call myself a bit of an accidental venture capitalist. It definitely wasn't what I went into graduate school thinking I was going to do, but looking
1: back, it really makes sense. I love the fact that your degree combined a design element. Do you think that design element helps you think differently as an investor, as you look at companies that are doing things differently with design at the forefront? Of course. So that's actually one of the core
0: tenets of our investment thesis is our companies using design in a matter to actually understand who they're solving the problem for and then how they're designing a solution that's, you know, empathetic, that actually meets the needs of people in society. And of course, looks good. That's always helpful in building a big business.
1: And so as a graduate student, you were exposed and very involved in the VCC and, and really started there. Can you tell us about that?
0: Yeah, so I was working with a bunch of entrepreneurs throughout Hopkins and Hopkins actually has right amazing schools of medicine, data science, I kind of call it Stanford talent, Baltimore prices, but there's very little capital in the ecosystem, even less so, you know, five, six years ago. And so a lot of these entrepreneurs with amazing backgrounds weren't able to find capital to finance their businesses. And they were going off to, you know, work at large corporates after graduation. And that really didn't sit well with me. I thought, you know, there's really this arbitrage investment opportunity of backing these founders very early on and allowing them to go forth with their businesses and connecting them to other forms of capital. So that's really where the idea of my first fund, A-Level Capital, the student fund, came about was how can we make sure these amazingly talented people actually get access to capital they need in order to start their businesses.
1: So it's interesting then at the same time you were starting a new career, you were probably helping other people start down new pathways that they might not have thought was what they were going to do.
0: Yeah. And it's really amazing. The lesson I learned out of all of that is even a small amount of capital, so our first investments were about $10,000, can actually be the difference of an individual committing to starting a company and really going through that journey first, you know, taking a job at a more traditional firm, because it's more about the psychology of somebody believes in me other than myself. And so I can take the next step on this really hard journey versus the actual money itself. And I think that really put a lot of emphasis to me that it's not always about the dollar amount, but it's really about being that supporter and cheerleader and, you know, helping somebody understand that
1: what you're doing is actually valuable and you should keep going. So as a student, I read that you had a lot of drive and your current partner now, Pocket Sun, said that she was inspired to see your hustle and your strategy. And I think that's just great. So someone else that you're now in business with from the very start really admired that about you. Were you always comfortable with making cold calls and getting out there? Yes. So always growing up, I
0: always had kind of little entrepreneurial endeavors I was doing. And I always wanted to kind of carve my own path in whatever I was pursuing at the time. But while I was going to school, I actually was driving in between DC and Baltimore every day, which sometimes could be, you know, two or three hours. So I was listening to a ton of audiobooks. And in these audiobooks, there were all these amazing women leaders. And I started creating a list of like, who are these women that one day I'd love to just do business with, have as my mentors, you know, do deals with. And so part of my business school experience was trying to find these women and reach out to them. And that really continued to then play out as I was starting the student fund, A-level capital, was we basically went through and said, you know, who are all the Johns Hopkins alumni in finance and venture capital and technology investing? And let's one by one reach out to them tell them our idea of what we wanna do, and if they'd be willing to, you know, mentor us and mentor the entrepreneurs and put in some money as a limited partner into the fund. And it was quite successful because a lot of these individuals had had entrepreneurial aspirations while they were at school as well, but maybe didn't have opportunities like this. So they were really excited about kind of giving this next generation of students the opportunity to learn how to invest, to learn about financial systems, to learn about technology investment as well as empower the student entrepreneurs.
1: So as you're going out there and talking to new people, introducing yourself, getting to know folks and growing your network, tell us your elevator pitch. How do you like to describe yourself and introduce yourself? Oh, that's a great question.
0: I like to introduce myself as somebody who has always seen arbitrage opportunities. So in Baltimore with Johns Hopkins it was really around the geographic distribution of capital allocation with Sogal it's really about you know women and other diverse founders not getting their fair share Of financing and kind of the investment opportunity around that. There's trillions of dollars to be unlocked by empowering women. So, you know, I say, you know, of course, I want to empower women from a social perspective, but it's also a deep business opportunity that
1: we should all be paying attention to. So since there are very few women venture capitalists out there, I'm curious, did anyone jump out at you as a mentor or role model? Or did you have men who were mentors and role models to you? I was really lucky. Through this cold outreach,
0: I had so many mentors that basically, I had no idea what running a venture capital fund was from a legal perspective, from a finance perspective. And so many mentors just helped us with each little part of putting this together. We have one wonderful mentor who she's been a venture Capitalist for over 20 years, Michelle Goldberg. She's also been on the board of institutions like Lake Mason, but she's been this amazing mentor, and she was the only woman at her firm for almost two decades as a venture capitalist of really helping us understand the history of women in venture capital over the past two decades and sort of the opportunity for women in venture capital in the future and really understanding there's a lot of dynamics at play when you're running a fund of how you manage your portfolio, how you're doing follow on investments, how you're using your time to support your entrepreneurs with value add activities. And, you know, at least in the beginning, we've been a very small fund, a very lean fund. So all these decisions are so important for our success. And she's been this amazing mentor that, you know, quarterly does a one to two day rundown with us from a very strategic level of just how everything is going on all these different aspects and really holds us accountable to running our business in the best and most effective way we can. So that's just been excellent to have, you know, one of the first women, VCs, who was one of the only for so long being such an
1: integral part of our firm. I am sure she has so much information and just knowledge to share with you and is probably so thrilled to do that. That is so exciting. So take us back to the day when you and Pocket decided you wanted to really act on that investment thesis of yours, which is to invest in women and really start SoGal Ventures. Tell us about that decision. Yes. So
0: we were actually at a program at Stanford together. We now actually have a scholarship in our name that enables other women to attend this program. We just had selected our third woman to go through this program. And one of the guest speakers, this was right after the Ellen Powell Kleiner Perkins sexual harassment case. And we were both graduating grad school, and it was very unclear to us if there was a place for us in the venture ecosystem. I had gone to many career fairs and conferences, as many MBA students do, and oftentimes, sometimes even the men venture capitalists would say, we don't hire women, or even if we hired a woman, I don't think we'd really trust their opinions. I was like, this is highly illegal, you probably shouldn't be saying this, and I don't know you. But it was really disheartening, and I know a lot of other younger women in the industry still face a lot of the same things. So for us, we really didn't know our place other than we really wanted to do something and work in this industry. But at the same time, I had been seeing with the student fund that even a very small amount of capital can be very powerful. So one of the guest speakers at the Stanford program, his name's Jason Calacanias, he's a big famous angel investor. He was one of Uber's first investors. He basically said, yeah, you're probably right. Even if you join one of these existing firms, you're probably not going to like the culture. And many of the times they're not going to respect your opinion. So instead, why don't you be an entrepreneur and be responsible for solving the problem and take a year or two and see what you can build in the next year or two, see what you can invest in, see what type of investor you are. And by that point, even if you're not successful in doing that, you'll have built this incredible network and people that respect you for the hustle and grit you've been demonstrating but perhaps you'll also be successful at doing it. And, you know, we really looked at each other and we were like, that's really interesting. But again, we had just met at this Stanford two-week program and obviously going into business with someone for what will be a multi-decade journey is something, at least in our eyes, we took very deliberately. And also, right, we were 23 and 25 when we met. And so, so young and so many male venture capitalists, we kind of went around and interviewed different venture capitalists just to get a lay of the land and get to know people And there was a lot of negativity, like who did we think we were to try and do this? What expertise could we actually bring to entrepreneurs as investors? So we actually wanted to kind of prove ourselves before we even went out and raised Sogal Ventures Fund One. So we actually started angel investing together as well as I continued to invest out of the student fund. So we actually had 30 investments under our belt before we even went out to truly seek capital for Sogal Ventures Fund One, and we had already had multiple exits and multiple markups in our portfolio. But because of all this sort of negativity that we had been thrown by the traditional industry, we really wanted to prove ourselves like, are we good investors? Do entrepreneurs actually want us in their companies? Do we work well together? as partners? And can we be fiduciaries of people's money for multiple decades? So we really had to prove that to our young selves, right? Before we even said, okay, now we can really get started.
1: But you did that. So it sounds like you took the time you needed to. And I love how deliberate you were. What were some of the challenges that you faced during that time? And what was the first big win you had where you thought, okay, we have just got to keep going?
0: I think, you know, the biggest challenge was ourselves sometimes, right? Sometimes we can hold ourselves back the most. And, you know, we were obviously young and getting a lot of this tough feedback from the industry. But even after we had made, you know, these 30 investments, it was hard for us to say we're venture capitalists, like the noun, you know, like this is who we are. But like we had already made more investments than many venture capitalists make in their entire careers. And right, we had underwritten each of these deals in a very short amount of time where some of them we were even determining all the legal structure of the deal and leading the investment as the first investors into these companies. And so we had actually done all of the work. But for us to admit it to ourselves that, you know, we have hit the bar of being a venture capitalist was very, very hard for us. It took us a few years. And I think that was one of the biggest challenges because we just didn't believe that
1: we could have already done this. But there was a moment that you must have felt comfortable, right? Tell us about that time where you realized we're onto something. We are good enough. We're really good at what we do. And we want to keep doing this together. So I think
0: as we started seeing the entrepreneurs that we had invested in when it was maybe just one or two or three co-founders start scaling their businesses and start receiving capital from, you know, firms that we had always admired and much larger check sizes and building their teams to, you know, dozens or even hundreds of people in a very short amount of time and us knowing that we were the first yes or, you know, one of the first yeses for these entrepreneurs, and we saw something that others didn't. That was very validating to us, because it not only said, like, yes, you can go through all the steps of writing a venture capital investment, but it actually said, like, you're finding the right people, you have good instinct, and you actually are adding value that they were able to get to the next step of where they needed to be. And I think after we sort of saw it in repetition, that happening over and over again, and just the gratitude that a lot of these entrepreneurs have of saying, thank you for believing in me when I didn't even believe in myself either, and that we could be that for somebody else, almost like we needed for ourselves. That was really kind of the moment in the shift of like, yes,
1: we not only can do this, but we have to do this. So, you've discussed before how you like to get to know founders more through informal settings versus coming in and doing a formal pitch to you. Why do you like to do that? You know, what do you see? How do you get to know people in that kind of format that might be different?
0: So, I always say in a prior life or in a different career, I would either be a private investigator or a psychologist. (laughs) So,
1: maybe you do a little bit of all of them now.
0: Yeah. So, I love just I call it hoarding information and sort of parsing through lots of data and information and finding out things from different sources that maybe other people haven't put together. And I also absolutely love the psychology behind what drives entrepreneurs to try and do this really hard thing called building a business and what motivates them right, to wake up every day to face all these obstacles with resilience and tenacity and the why behind it. I look at a pitch deck, I do a ton of research before the pitch meeting, I like to be really prepared, but then I like it to be conversations and definitely write in later meetings as we're going on through the process. I like doing things like, you know, walking in the park with dogs, doing a yoga class, going to a macaroon class, because I think some of the most important questions are, tell me about a conflict that you and your your co-founder had, and how did you two navigate it? Tell me about, you know, a business decision where you felt your integrity might be questioned depending on what you did and how did you think about that? Who did you go to to get advice? What was your end decision and why? And really trying to understand who are these individuals as people. But the truth is you really have to invest in people that you believe will be leaders that can grow and that have self-awareness and that embody values that you hold close to your heart. Because you can't be there every day. You can't be there building the company. That's not your role as a venture capitalist. So it's really important to sort of understand who the entrepreneur is and how that's going to build the DNA of the company around them. I love
1: that. I mean, it sounds like you get a much more layered view of people and their dreams and how they're going to go about building their companies than you would in a very short meeting around a table with paper. And the way you even describe how passionate you are about listening to their stories, I love that. I mean, I I love thinking about founders' stories all day, too, and what really motivated them to solve a problem, and did they experience that problem themselves? Can you think of a company in the portfolio and maybe of several, but someone that really struck you as really passionate, solving a problem differently, someone that you met and you realized I have to get on board with that person? Yes. So our largest holding of our portfolio
0: so far is a company called Etterniva. And they're really reimagining the death care space. And I've personally experienced loss and grief as I'm sure many of us have. I and mean, it's something, you know, everyone's thinking about throughout this entire pandemic, but there just really isn't great solutions around grieving currently or kind of historically. And the founder, she had lost one of her closest business mentors very early on, a young woman from pancreatic cancer. This woman was really close with her, almost like a sister, and she wanted to figure out how do I, you know, keep her in my memories and close to me as I go about my journey in life. And she started looking at options for can you create, you know, a memorial diamond out of ashes of a loved one who passed away. And she built this incredible company. They just raised a very impressive Series A. I won't share all the details, but she is really reimagining how, as Americans, do we think about death? Do we think about grieving? Do we think about honoring loved ones once they're no longer part of this physical world? And it was because of her own experiences and her own frustration of not feeling like she had a great way to honor such an important person in her life that she really
1: went on this journey to create this company. That is a really unique product. So you're creating a diamond out of somebody's ashes wow. So were you drawn to that right away? Or did that take you some convincing to say there's a market for that?
0: I was drawn to it right away because I had lost my godmother, who was really a second mother to me, right around that time and very unexpectedly. And she was the sunshine of my life. So I'm actually creating a yellow diamond for her and a sun ring so that I always remember the light and airiness that she brought into my life and bring that with me wherever I go. So I was also really looking for like, you know, this isn't my blood mother. So a lot of people didn't understand why this grief was so deep to me or why I cared so much. She has her own children, right? I'm not her child. But I didn't feel like I maybe even had a place, right, in this whole grieving process of the close family. And I needed to process that on my own. And what did that look like? And I think a lot of people have, right, important people in their lives that may not be their blood relative. And what's wonderful about this too is it only takes a small amount of ashes. So different people can, you know, memorialize the same person in many different
1: ways. Wow, that's a beautiful story. And the reason why you'd be drawn to that. So what is the hardest investment decision that you've had to make? I've read that you really enjoy the debate process when it comes to thinking about things and talking to Pocket or talking to others about your decisions. So clearly enjoy that. What's been a hard one for you?
0: Traditionally in venture capital at the seed stage where we invest, the metrics are about you expect about 30 to 35 percent of your companies to get funded to the next round and traditionally in about 12 to 18 months. We were finding because we were investing in, you know, these women at what we thought were very undervalued valuations, we had over 85% of our portfolio getting follow on financing and raising in even quicker timeframes. And this was happening while we were still raising our fund itself. So we never had enough capital to kind of allocate the way that would be optimal. So we had to always have these intense debates about where do we put each of our dollars? How much equity is that buying for a portfolio that is right, performing beyond any model or expectations we had and with entrepreneurs that are, you know, for the most part, all phenomenal? And how do we think about really building a portfolio that outperforms? And I think those are some of the most difficult conversations you have to have as a venture capitalist because you've already made the decision to support these entrepreneurs. And then you're deciding if you're continuing and putting more money into their companies. And I think right, there's a lot of emotion around that. And I think for us, especially, a lot of these companies were raising from, you know, really brand name investors that we really admired. And so the easy thing would be, okay, these brand name investors are investing. We're just going to follow the brand names. But that didn't necessarily match how we were, you know, intellectually thinking about the portfolio, the performance, the size of each of these opportunities. And so as right, young first-time fund managers, we actually had to have conviction and say, we're going to go in the opposite direction of some of these big brand name firms because we're seeing some stuff that maybe
1: they don't necessarily see, but we need to rely on our intuition. That's really interesting to hear you say that. I think probably with your role as an advisor too, to the founders, you must see them go into situations that might not feel very good. You know, go in front of other VCs, try to raise money, get more rejections. How do you help counsel them through that kind of experience?
0: Yes, so at Sogal Ventures, we really believe mental health and wellness for entrepreneurs is really important. We actually have a six month peer group mental health and wellness program called Build Without Burnout that we offer founders in our portfolio and also founders outside of our portfolio because we believe it is so important that that, you know, you have other peers to discuss some of these really difficult conversations and experiences you're having. And that could just be right from rejection to all the way being right, sexually harassed. But as an entrepreneur, you're kind of facing all of these different situations. So we believe we have a text message thread with each of our founders. And because Pocket and I are based in Asia and then in the US, one of us is up at any given time. And I think as women, we can be really good listeners. We can be very empathetic and they are open to discussing this with honesty with us because we've built relationships where they're, they know there's not retribution. They know that, you know, if they tell us this really difficult situation, we're not going to pull their funding or we're not going to try and replace them as a CEO, but we're going to actually be there for them and be able to say, like, here's what we've seen across. We've almost invested in 100 companies now. Here's what we've seen happen in these situations across other companies we've invested in. And here's how they navigated with it. But we try and get to the hard questions and the hard kind of the five layers beyond kind of deep into the problem of what the root cause is and really the root cause analysis. We call ourselves friend-vestors, we're not exactly your friend, we're not exactly your investor, we're a little bit in between. And we just try and be there so they know they're not alone, because being a CEO can be a very lonely journey.
1: You've described, and I think you've really put out there, that what you're trying to do is be an ecosystem for investors, with the Sogal Foundation and what you're doing in various cities to really create more of a community, not just give money to founders, but really create that whole support system. I and mean, you said it just now, networking and advice why do you think it was so important to go beyond just the funding piece and create a supportive ecosystem? So as a fund,
0: Sogal Ventures, we invest in about 10 to 20 companies a year. But at this point, we're seeing over 50,000 companies a year coming in as deal flow. So there's an incredible amount of women-led companies that are so beyond the scope of what we can even invest in as a fund. And we've also met incredible women as limited partners in our fund and their friends who are you know, executives at technology companies, executives at financial institutions, entrepreneurs themselves, and they do have, right, savings, investment sort of allocation, but haven't had access to alternative assets. And to me, this is something that is actually perpetuating the wealth gap, right? If you're already paid less in your role, and then you don't have access to alternative investments, which are the higher risk, higher reward asset classes, over time, the wealth gap between women and men only exponentially increases. So for us, it's always been really important of how do we give access and democratize access for women that want to dip their toe in for the first time in alternative investments. So for our second fund, we're actually legally structuring it in a way that we can take on hundreds of LPs so that we can have a minimum that is accessible to many women who are just starting off. So our goal this year is to train 1000 women angel investors to write their first check in their first 6 months of learning how to be an angel investor and our belief is that you know as the world opens back up and they can go back into their local communities all over the world they can then know how to analyze right an entrepreneur and startup deal they're looking at for example in Bangladesh in India and we may not be able to invest in that as a fund but as an angel they can actually put money to work in those ecosystems. And I think that's really our thought of how do we make these global ecosystems really grow because women already have the wealth and are generating the wealth. It's just how do you then put it back into generating,
1: you know, additional business growth in supporting women. So it's so interesting because it's not only the founders that you're trying to help, it's the investor side too. Was that always a part of the goal? Or as you said, as more opportunities came in that you just couldn't handle yourself, you realized you could help educate others to take advantage of those opportunities?
0: We always, even from our start, we have an initiative called SheVC that especially is pretty big in Asia, bringing different women venture capitalists together to support them in their careers. Um, But understanding... The angel investment landscape and just how powerful that can be. In the US alone, there's almost 20 million accredited investors that would qualify to be angel investors. And men are angel investing at a rate almost 20 times what women are angel investing in. So there's so much you know, investable capital to be unlocked. So far in data we've seen, women actually produce better investment returns and they tend to invest more so in female founders. They tend to invest more or so in what we would call either triple bottom line or ESG types of companies that are thinking about things like education, sustainability, healthcare, things that really all matter to the future of us as society. So for us, it was really this like, how do we unlock that? And how do we use what we've learned in our six-year journey of becoming investors to enable and empower these other women who are phenomenal? They have amazing careers and amazing expertise and you know, incredible desire to help other women build businesses. And how do we give them, you know, the education and access to learning how to do this?
1: Tell us about the men in your network. Are the men coming forward too and becoming more interested in supporting women founders? We
0: have so many incredible male supporters, especially other male VCs who, you know, they may have been in this business for decades and do recognize that it is a problem. And I think the biggest kind of part of this whole systemic problem is it's a network problem. Like we're each operating in different networks and there's not a lot of cross collaboration between the networks. I know I was listening to some of the podcasts before about how you guys have six different really big initiatives beyond just women on the move. And I think that's very important, right? There are all these different networks that haven't been invested in or connected.
1: Thank you. I think that was very well said. So we will encourage our male allies to do more of that. So what are you looking for right now when it comes to investments or interesting companies out there? Anything that you're particularly interested in or focused on?
0: Yes, so one of my biggest areas of interest right now is really a complete revolutionary way of thinking about aging care. I would say a company that doesn't exist yet that I really would love to exist is thinking about how we use a lot of this real estate that, you know, is just sitting there. As we see healthcare innovations that are extending life and also extending the quality of life, there's going to be need to be new infrastructure around the caregiving economy, especially when you think of, for example, countries like China, where things like the one-child policy means that there is one child now caring for their parents as well as perhaps the parents of their significant other, as well as caring for their own children, there's going to need to be new models of living and caring and working that are much more intersectional and connected and use caregiving as a positive value creator rather than something that is expected from us that we don't necessarily even know how to do and never were trained on how to do this but is something that many of us will need to do. So I'm really excited about how does technology, real estate and culture all intersect in really revolutionizing what the next generation of aging caregiving looks like. I haven't seen any companies that kind of fit my bigger vision for this. So I'd love if somebody is listening to this podcast and is thinking about that, I'd love to talk to you.
1: You're describing something I certainly wish I had many years ago as I had to take care of my ailing father. So I I think we're, all of us are going to feel this in some way at some point in our lives. And it's so interesting to hear you come back to healthcare, which is where you started. So clearly it's near and dear to your heart still. And perhaps all that training around the table with the doctors around you, it's really rubbed off. So it's so nice to see that. So with all the things that you consume, I'm sure you are an avid reader, listener of podcasts. What is really exciting you right now that you'd love to recommend to others, whether that's a book or something you're listening to? So I've been reading
0: Enough by John Bogle, who is the founder of Vanguard. And I think at this point in my career, I'm now reflecting we've been really successful with our investments. We've made money for our investors. And what does Enough really mean? And what does our contribution to society and progress, when is that enough for us individually? But also, how do we think about that as we grow and scale our firm into the people we hire and their own mindsets of what success looks like and what sustainable investing looks like? So I'm still in the middle of it, but it's been a great read so far.
1: Elizabeth, thank you so much for speaking with us today. It's been such a pleasure just hearing about the fund, how you operate, what your mission is and just your ideas in general. It's been a lot of fun speaking with you. Thank you so much, Sam. This has been wonderful.
0: And thank you for all you do with Women on the Move.
1: Thank you to Elizabeth Galbett for sharing her experiences and investing approach, which she's grounded in design, culture, and psychology. I loved hearing how she's going beyond investing in women to creating a global ecosystem of both women and men who are investing in women. Thanks for listening to this third and final installment on Women Founders and Funders. Please catch the other two podcasts for more insight and inspiration. The mission of Women on the Move is to help women in their professional and personal lives. Our goal is to introduce you to people with great ideas, inspiring stories, and a passion to make a difference. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe so you won't miss any others. For J.P. Morgan Chase's Women on the Move, I'm Sam Saperstein. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank N.A. is a member of the FDIC.